Hello everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we are going to look at Out of This World, or Another World, depending on what part of this world you are from. Out of This World in North America, and Another World pretty much everywhere else, was a cinematic platform adventure game developed and published by Delphine Software and released on the Amiga computer platform back in 1991, and ported to numerous other platforms such as the Super NES, Sega Genesis, Macintosh, MS-DOS, 3DO, Sega CD, and pretty much anything else with an electrical pulse back in the 90s. Before we get to that, though, as is customary, we're going to do a little bit of housekeeping up front. Um, as everybody knows, I really do want to build a community around this podcast and around classic gaming in general. This is our seventh episode, and I am excited with what we've done so far, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how it can continue to grow. If you would like to reach out to me for whatever reason, whether that's to provide feedback or ask about different games or suggest new games for future episodes, I do have a couple of ways you can reach me. You can either send me an email at classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. So feel free to reach out via either of those mechanisms. I would love to hear what you're all thinking. For anybody who's new, welcome. We are just going to go really quickly over what the anatomy of an episode looks like and pretty much follow the same format or style throughout most of these episodes. There might be a little bit of variability coming up in a little bit just because I think it's always fun to mix things up. But most of the time, and for this episode in particular, we're going to follow the traditional anatomy of an episode, which means... We will start by talking about history. We'll go over to the historical context of the game that we're talking about for the day, and then we're going to dive into a pseudo-review kind of section. I say pseudo-review because it's not really going to be about assigning a score or anything like that, but we will talk about each game from the perspective of the kinds of things you would typically see in a review. So things like graphics, how does the game look, sound and music, which is how does the game sound? The narrative and or story of the game, if the game has one, we'll also talk about the playability and controls, as well as the overall feel of playing the game in 2022 in comparison to whenever the game was released. So we look through all of that with the intent of reaching a verdict, and the verdict is really focused on does that game hold up today? And in order to do that, we will segment or we will assign a certain category to each of the games we talk about. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If you are a game that reaches the Pantheon of Classic Gaming, that means you are a certifiable classic and anybody out there should still play the game today. It has aged very well, if not at all, actually, because some games just really don't age. They just remain as good as they ever have been. These are the rare gems that you should play today no matter what. Whether you like the genre or not, I highly recommend them. You should go out and play them. Just below the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are games that may have aged a little bit from when they were released. They're still great games, still great experiences. I still highly recommend you play them. Certainly, if you have nostalgia for the game itself, you should play it again. If you enjoy the genre but have never experienced the game, you should probably play it. These are excellent games. They're just not quite at that Pantheon level. Moving on down the list, we get down to our Mediocre Mentions. 
these are games that I can't really recommend. You may have a good time if you appreciate the genre or you just want to experience the game. Go ahead, try it out. But these are ones that I really can't recommend. They just, for whatever reason, either they didn't age all that well or there were some elements of the game that just weren't all that great to begin with. And then finally, at the very bottom of our list is the footnote. These are games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend any games that fall into this category. Either they have aged very poorly, or they're just not great to begin with, and I really don't recommend you give it a shot. You certainly can if you want to. I can't control you, nor would I want to. But I can't recommend any titles that fall into that category. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the history of Out of This World or Another World, depending on where you live. So we are going to talk about Out of This World, and I'm just going to call it Out of This World for the sake of this episode because that is how I knew the game, because I live in North America, so it was Out of This World here. It was a cinematic platform adventure game developed by Delphine Software and released back in 1991 on a bunch of different platforms, primarily the Amiga computer platform and then ported pretty much everywhere else. And there are, and we're going to talk about this, we've talked about ports and various platforms having different levels of quality and different uh, platforms having different um, aspects of the game or different features of the game. We're going to talk about that with Out of This World because there are some key differences, but we'll get about that or we'll get into that in a little bit. So we're going to start by talking about the history behind the game. And most of the time when we talk about gaming history, a lot of the early development of these titles have focused on teams of people or how companies are formed and how a bunch of different people meet up in computer labs and they form these these companies that eventually go on to create amazing things. This particular story, however, is almost exclusively the result of a single man and his efforts with, of course, some supporting characters along the way. And that man is Eric Chahi, who is a French developer who has been working in the gaming industry since around 1983, and he's primarily been a game programmer. So most of his efforts or most of his focus at that point in his career have been on programming the actual games that he's been working on. And he had been working back then for a company called Lourciel, and I apologize if I'm pronouncing any of these names wrong, by the way. I am not very well-versed in French pronunciation, so I apologize up front if I'm butchering any of these names. In any event, he was working for a company called Lariciel, which was a fairly prolific software publisher. They actually published over 150 titles from around 1983 through the early 1990s, 
primarily focused on the personal computer market. Now, when I say personal computer market in this context, they were very focused on PC platforms that might seem a little bit foreign to any of our American listeners. And just to go into a little bit of history around the personal computer market back in the 80s, there was a ton or there were a ton of different competing standards for what they called personal computers. Today, you think of a PC or a computer and you pretty much can run anything you want on a PC. It's pretty standardized. There are, of course, Linux-based machines, Macintosh or Apple-based machines, and the traditional kind of Windows machines. Those are kind of your three standards today. From a hardware perspective, most of the hardware is interchangeable. Back in the 80s, that was very much not the case, and every single computer manufacturer, for the most part, had proprietary hardware and proprietary platforms, which meant if you were developing a piece of software for a single platform, that was not necessarily easily portable between other platforms. So Lariciel, the company, had focused on the PC as a platform, but it was not like they were focusing on Windows-based machines. They were working on some machines that, for some of you who are well-versed or have some familiarity with classic and retro gaming computers, you may have heard of these before. Things like the Amstrad, the Commodore 64, the Atari AT. Those were pretty popular computers or microcomputers back in the 80s slash into the early 90s around. There were other platforms, though, that the company was developing for that I had never heard of before. And maybe some of you have. I have not. There was one platform called the Matra or Matra Alice machine. There was the Auric series of computers. And there was also the Thompson TO7, to name just a few of some of the more esoteric platforms, at least to me, that the company was developing for. And you saw this a lot in Europe. Actually, the microcomputer market in Europe was dramatically different, or the computer market in Europe was dramatically different than what you might have seen in America. Uh, in the European market, there were a ton of these what they called microcomputer systems that were uh, pretty much across all of the different countries in Europe, and each country had some of their own standards. So that's why you see some of these or such a huge number of variety of platforms around there because they just every company or every country had their own platforms that that were be pretty much being developed within that country uh, so eric chahi not to talk too much about just the technology here but chahi had gainful employment but he didn't really work on anything at this point that could be considered a recognizable hit so larissiel as a company was publishing titles for numerous computer systems and at the time, there was a new French software company called Delphine Software International that was being formed. Now, that was founded, that company was founded in 1988, and Delphine was created for the purpose of releasing cinematic gaming experiences for computer and home consoles. I do want to talk just a minor tangential story here. The company's founder, a man by the name of Paul de Seneville, was a fairly successful musician and music producer in France and had actually created his own record label in the early 70s that was called Delphine Records, which had been named after his daughter, conveniently enough, Delphine. So obviously that was the inspiration behind the name of the new software company as well. And one of the first employees to join that company was a man named Paul Crisset. Uh, he was also a French video game developer and designer, and he became the lead designer for Delphine Software. Fast forward a little bit to 1989, 
and Paul Crissett was working on one of the company's first games, a title called Future Wars, which was a third-person point-and-click graphical adventure game. And anybody who knows me knows I love point-and-click adventure games. It's one of my favorite genres of of game. Um, So this was a title that was in that genre that Delphine Software was working on. Around that same time, Eric Chahi was looking for a change of pace. He had been working for Lariciel for quite some time, and he ended up leaving the company and joining Delphine Software to work on the game Future Wars that Paul Crissett was working on, and Chahi came over as a graphics designer. So together, Crissett and Chahi worked on and completed Future Wars, and it was released to pretty positive reviews by both the press and the gaming community. It was released under the Delphine Software Cinematique label, which was a sign that Delphine Software was really focused on providing those cinematic experiences in their games. That game was pretty darn successful. With that success and the royalties that resulted from that success, Chahi was given an opportunity to pretty much choose whatever he wanted to do for his next project. He could either keep working with Paul Crissett on their next game, which was going to be called Operation Stealth. That's actually a really interesting title um, in its own right. There was, we'll go off a little bit of a side tangent here. Operation Stealth was um, granted the James Bond license in North America. It did not have the James Bond license elsewhere. So it basically created a game, or they created a game that was pretty much James Bond without calling it. James Bond, except in America where he was called James Bond. It was a really interesting or really weird kind of setup with that game. I I encourage you guys to look that one up if you're not aware of it. It was just weird how they kind of worked through that licensing kind of thing and just the way they designed the game and using James Bond in America, but not using James Bond everywhere else and some of the inconsistencies that would come along with that because it's not like they shifted the whole title around to work around the James Bond license. Just, I don't know, kind of funny to me. Some of these things just amuse me for some reason. Anyway, Chahi was given the option of either working on Operation Stealth or he could develop his own game. Now, Chahi had been working with the Amiga computer platform and there was a pretty good amount of developer resources that had become available for the Amiga platform. And with Chahi pretty much able to write his own ticket to create whatever game he wanted given Future Wars success, he decided to begin working on his own game by himself, almost in isolation. He decided to just start working on his own game that would be his own brainchild. In the late 80s, game development was continuing to shift from solo kind of development efforts, where back in the earlier 80s, you would have literal single developers working on pretty much every aspect of a title, whether that was graphics, sound, programming, all of that stuff. Back then, the games were simpler, so a lot of times those earlier experiences from the early 1980s could actually be created single-handedly by a single person. As you started to fast-forward into the later 80s, the whole development environment or the whole gaming industry started to shift more towards a team-based environment where you would have different specialized people that took on different roles across that title. So you would have artists that worked on the art. You would have musicians that composed the music for games. You'd have graphics artists. You'd have designers, people who could code and develop the actual software that the game ran on. So you'd have these different team kind of roles, and that was how the game industry was moving. And certainly today, that is just the way the game industry is for the most part. Chahi, though, went against the grain 
and he set off pretty much to create his own game as a solo effort, which was a little unusual given the time that he was working on it. Now, he decided he wanted to work on this solo, but he also had to decide what kind of game he was going to make. He wasn't quite sure. He knew he wanted to do something as an individual, but he didn't know what he was going to make. And as many people often do when you start thinking about, well, where are my interests? What are my interests lie in and how can I use those interests to my advantage? He had a bunch of different varied interests at the time that spanned a ton of different categories. He liked science fiction. He liked fantasy art. He also liked Japanese manga, uh, just to name a few. And he wanted to incorporate those interests into his new game somehow. In some capacity, he wanted to incorporate those interests into his game. He just wasn't sure quite how to do it. At the time, he had also recently been impressed by an arcade game called Dragon's Lair. And specifically, not just the arcade game Dragon's Lair, but specifically he was impressed by the Amiga port of the arcade game. But we should talk just very briefly about Dragon's Lair. We'll probably spend an entire podcast episode talking about Dragon's Lair because it is pretty significant in computing history or in video gaming history. But Dragon's Lair was an early laserdisc full motion video game that was released back in the early 80s and basically the way it worked was most arcade games at the time were uh, sprite based pixel graphics or had vector graphics they were pretty primitive they had some okay quality graphics but they were relatively primitive in comparison to certainly what you would see today dragon's lair utilized laserdisc as a technology to basically store full motion video cartoon sequences and the way the game worked is at various points throughout the cartoon playing you would choose an action whether that was left right up down on the joystick or swing your sword and depending on what action you chose if you chose the right one the video would continue to play and you'd continue to watch this cartoon if you chose the wrong one you would be met with one of any number of a variety of death scenes for your character and this was something that was revolutionary and the the full motion video the actual cartoon that was playing was animated and created by don bluth who was a famous ex-disney animator who had gone off on his own to develop a lot of different animated features uh, as well so this was something where the quality of the of the cartoon that was playing was the same as what you would see in a movie theater and to see that in an arcade in the early 80s next to what appeared to be much more primitive machines was just mind-boggling for anybody who experienced it at the time. So Chahi was aware of Dragon's Lair and he recognized that in the arcade it was just it was a crazy experience but he was particularly impressed by the Amiga port because the Amiga did not have access to a Laserdisc. A Laserdisc held a lot of information and was able to store a lot of those video files so that it was able to play those videos back as you're as you're interfacing or interacting with the game in the arcade. The Amiga port took that Laserdisc and took the storage from the Laserdisc and converted it into a six floppy disk game. There were some concessions. They had to use compression in order to reduce the overall size of the cartoon video that meant that the cartoon wasn't really nearly as crisp as what you would see in the arcade it didn't really feel exactly like what you would see in a movie theater or on a video screen watching a cartoon but regardless you still had for the most part the dragon's lair experience at home 
Now, one of the other concessions that they had to make when they did that conversion as well was that they could only have around 12 different scenes from the arcade, not including the mirrored versions of the scenes. And just for anybody who's unaware, Dragon's Lair has around 39-ish different scenes that could potentially play at any point in time during the arcade experience as you're playing through it. Certain scenes, in order to interject a little bit of variety, were simply mirrored images of themselves. So they were mirrored horizontally. So if you entered a room and one time you were entering from the left, maybe next time you're entering it from the right because they mirrored the image and they, of course, would mirror then the controls or the the expected prompts that you would have to put into the game to be successful. So the biggest issue when anybody was converting Dragon's Lair from this gigantic laser disc with a ton of storage into an at-home kind of experience was the storage space. Arcades could pretty much use however much storage they wanted, and laser discs held a pretty good amount of storage because they were, in fact, uh, media devices that could hold dramatically more than what a floppy disk or what a small floppy disk could hold today from a home perspective or from a home perspective at that time. So Chahi saw the Amiga port and he was, first of all, he thought it was amazing that they could do what they did, but he thought, you know what? I can actually make a more efficient version of that and I can save space. So he thought that he'd be able to take that laser disc and not just convert it into a six floppy disk game, but actually do it better, do do more compression of the overall required space and fit it into less disks while still maintaining the same quality of the experience. And he used that guiding principle of trying to or wanting to make it better. And he used that as the basis for the creation or at least the principle for the creation of his new game. And he had to figure out how to do that, or he had to think about how to do that. How would he take what was effectively a video and make it even smaller than what the Dragon's Lair team had done when they moved it to the Amiga system? And what Chahi decided to do was create an engine that was based on polygon graphics. When most people think of polygons, especially today, when somebody says or they talk about polygons, they're usually thinking about games that are three-dimensional in nature because polygons are uh, figures that have multiple points, multiple sides, and usually they exist in or they're composed in a three-dimensional space. So you have multiple polygons that make up a certain model in a three-dimensional space. But really, at their core, all a polygon is are just shapes with multiple sides. That's effectively what the definition of the word is, is just a multi-sided shape. So it doesn't have to be used purely in a 3D context. Now, when we talk about graphics, we really have to draw a distinction between polygon graphics, which are based on these multi-sided shapes, and raster graphics. So polygon graphics are defined by the shapes, and the shapes are defined by the points of the shapes. So you can think of creating a scene with polygon graphics as you could almost, all you would need is a series of points and some sort of instruction in the computer that says to connect point A to point B, and you could pretty much draw whatever polygon you want with using minimal space from a storage perspective, because all you have to maintain are the individual vertices of the polygon and the directions for how to connect those vertices. When we talk raster graphics, raster graphics actually requires every single pixel to be defined with some sort of color or element. So if you look at an image, if you took a picture with your phone, with your camera, 
and you and you put it on your computer screen. Every single pixel within that photo has some characteristic colors or something that make up all of the elements of the photo. You can't give a computer instructions and say, recreate this photo because you basically need to have all of those individual pixels defined. With a polygon-based engine, you don't need that. All you need are those points and how to connect the points. So you could see how transitioning into a more polygon graphic-based engine can save a dramatic amount of storage space because you don't have to maintain all of the different pixels. You don't need to maintain information about every single pixel. You can just maintain the information about how the shapes are formed, and then you can color those shapes in or texture those shapes however you want. Basically, you save a ton of space by going with polygon graphics versus raster graphics. Now, polygon graphics can take advantage of vector graphics, and vector graphics are effectively what we were just talking about, where you define the points of the shape, you tell the computer or the platform you're working on how to connect those dots, fill the shape in with a color, whether that's a solid color or a texture, whatever that is, and that basically means you have have an image without defining every aspect of the image. That results in a dramatic reduction in space requirements. And this was actually something that for anybody who may be aware of the early online systems, which would eventually become Sierra Online, some of their earlier games, particularly their first game, Mystery House, when uh, Ken Williams was trying to figure out how to store graphics for a computer game, because at the time, back in, this is, I guess, the very early 80s, maybe like 80, 81, I can't recall the exact year when Mystery House was being developed. But Ken Williams wanted to create or wanted to use a graphical interface for the adventure. And Roberta Williams wanted to do graphics for her adventure. It was something that was unheard of at the time. And there was a severe lack of storage options for what they were trying to do. So Ken Williams came up with a method to effectively use vector graphics, where all he needed were the points and how to connect the points, and he was able to store the graphics in the machine and then recreate or redraw the the graphics based on what those points were and what those instructions were. So he had come up with a similar system back in the very early 80s to create the online systems graphical adventure games, or at least their first graphical adventure games. Jahi was doing something very similar, albeit with some additional technology thrown in because it was much later than what those early efforts were that Ken Williams was working on. So Chahi created a uh, polygon vector graphics-based engine using assembly language which allowed for lower level access to the actual hardware of the machine, which ultimately resulted in more efficient performance. So just real quickly, assembly language is basically writing code, so to speak, that interfaces directly with the hardware of a machine. A lot of times when somebody develops something, they actually use what's called a higher level programming language, which reads a little bit more like what a human would expect with actual English or whatever language words included there. So it's much easier to read, much easier to understand. Assembly language, you're basically talking directly to memory registers and directly to low-level hardware as you're creating or as you're developing your piece of software. It's much more difficult to use, but because you have direct access to the hardware, it's much more efficient and it actually gives you better performance if you do it well. So it turns out that creating Literally everything in the game out of polygons would be incredibly labor-intensive. 
you're talking about, you'd have to create every single element of a scene, whether that's the background, the foreground, the characters. Doing all of that with polygons is going to be really tough and have it actually be something that looks good. So Chahi decided to do a little bit of a hybrid approach. He would create traditional bitmap graphics for the game backgrounds. So the backgrounds for his game that he was working on would be the traditional graphic files or graphic images. And he used Deluxe Paint, which we have talked about before. Deluxe Paint was the art program of the time, especially for doing game development. So he would use the background images would be traditional bitmap graphics. The foreground elements and the characters would all be polygon based. So with that engine created, Chahi did pull those elements together. He created his game engine. After he did that, he turned his attention to the style of the game. And he knew that he wanted to create a cinematic science fiction experience. He was really into science fiction. He wanted to create something that was going to be in a science fiction universe. And he decided to use a concept called rotoscoping for the animations to create a, an overall smoothness to what the experience would eventually become. So we should talk a little bit about rotoscoping because I'm, maybe not everybody knows exactly what rotoscoping is. Basically, at its core, what rotoscoping is, is filming or taking a photograph of something and then drawing over it frame by frame, if you're talking about an animation, to basically obscure the actual film that was recorded and replace it with whatever is drawn on top of it. So there's a few different examples of rotoscoping that most people are probably familiar with. One of the biggest examples, or one of the most well-known examples, is from the early Star Wars films, the lightsaber effect, especially in the very first Star Wars, that was all rotoscoped. So what they did was, when they had filmed those lightsaber scenes, they had the individual characters holding what was effectively a stick, and then the uh, Industrial Lights and Magic, I think it was Industrial Lights and Magic even back then, that Lucas had created, but that company went in and frame by frame, they drew over those sticks and they created the lightsaber effects. And that was, that's known as rotoscoping to be able to draw over those frame by frame images and create something different. Uh, Jordan Mechner also utilized rotoscoping in a number of his games. The earlier example here that he used was in, in Prince of Persia, where he had used rotoscoping for the character movement, which once again created a smoothness to the animation that he probably wouldn't have been able to do if he didn't use rotoscoping and actually filmed those motions and colored over them or drew over them. He also later on would use rotoscoping for The Last Express, which was an adventure game that Jordan Mechter developed back in the 90s. One of the other examples that uses rotoscoping a lot or used to use rotoscoping a lot were old Disney cartoons. If you ever look back at some of the old Disney cartoons and you see some of the dance scenes like in the ballroom and you see just, wow, those those animations look really smooth. How the heck did they do that by hand? Well, it was actually turned out to be rotoscoped and they had real people that were doing those dances and then they drew over them frame by frame to create the the cartoon visual, albeit using the actual recorded video as the basis of the animation. So rotoscoping was used a lot across a number of different industries, and Chahi decided that he wanted to use a similar kind of approach when he was creating the animations for his new game. So Chahi ended up filming himself doing various actions, and then he would draw over those films with the polygons that he was building into the engine to create the animations for the game. If anybody has a chance, there is actually a relatively short video that 
Chahi appears in on YouTube that talks about the creation of another world or out of this world. And in that video, he actually goes through and shows some of the real world items that were eventually included in and rotoscoped in the game. It's pretty interesting to look at that he has, he still has uh, objects like the blaster gun that was used in the game. He actually shows what that looks like in real life. He also has a couple of other items like the car that appears in the very introductory sequence. He has that. He also has the original soda soda can that was opened during the intro. It's pretty cool to see what those real world items looked like and what those real world world videos looked like before he rotoscopes them. So I do recommend you guys check out that video if you're interested in learning a little bit more. And one of the other things that Chahi wanted to do in the process of creating a cinematic experience, or at least a cinematic feeling experience, was to remove some of those common game elements that you would typically expect to see in a game. Most of the time when people would play games back at this time, they were they were focused on scores and they had all different UI elements, user interface elements on the screen. But Chahi decided that, you know, when you watch a movie... Those things aren't on the screen. It's not like you see a score. It's not like you see a life bar or anything like that. So Chahi decided his game would take cues from cinema. There was no score. There were no user interface elements on the screen. There was no heads up display. All it was, was a screen showing your actions and showing the scene that you were participating in. It was basically just you watching the gameplay on the screen, just the same as if you were watching a movie. There were no user interface elements that would distract from the cinema-like experience that he was trying to create. So Chahi had a style, he had an engine, he had an overall vision of what he wanted to do with a sci-fi cinematic experience. The only problem was that he didn't really have a story Yet He had all of these individual discrete elements, but he didn't have a story connecting them all together. And it turns out that most of the game was improvised. <laughs> there was there was some high level design that Chahi was working around and we talked about the overall style and the engine and what he was trying to do there. But I get the impression that there was no detailed design document that storyboarded out scenes and things like that. Basically, as Chahi worked, he developed and, and went in and he created these new scenes. So the story was almost entirely improvised as Chahi was working through it, which is kind of crazy to me. But because he was doing that, the whole process of creating the game evolved over time, and oftentimes different pieces of the game would reflect how Chahi was feeling at the time that he was creating them. So as an example, most of the work, like we were talking about, most of the work he did on this game was entirely solo. He was working pretty much in isolation. So that feeling of isolation and loneliness ended up being reflected in the game, especially at the very beginning of the game. You're you're basically dropped into this alien world. You are totally isolated. You are alone. It's a desolate, crumbling alien world. You have no friends. You have no companions. You don't know what the heck is going on. You're just there. And it is a very isolating kind of experience. And because the game's development and scenes were improvised, that meant that new things were constantly being added to fit in with how Chahi was feeling at the time as he was developing the game. It did allow flexibility because, hey, if you're not marching towards a a well-defined or a concrete vision, you can pretty much change whatever you want. So as an example there, when he was working on 
the actual act of animating your character. And he got to the point where he wanted to include some steps in some of the letter levels, just general stairs. It turns out that animating the act of walking up or down the stairs was actually pretty difficult to animate. So he decided, eh, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to use elevators or portals to avoid going through that difficulty. Now, there are, there are at least one or two areas where there are some stairs that you have to navigate. But for the most part, there were elevators and portals because he, he just basically figured, I don't want to take the time to animate the, the walking up and down the stairs kind of thing. I'd just rather avoid it. Another example where you can see how Chahi's overall feeling shifted throughout the experience and ultimately resulted in the development changing. The original concept that he had for the game didn't have any sort of alien companion and it didn't have a laser blaster. It was supposed to be an entirely uh, non, I guess, non-violent experience. But as he went through the development of the game, he decided to add these elements, which he thought would further enhance the experience. And he continued working on the game this way, basically as a solo developer or a solo person in front of pretty much every aspect of the game until after 17 months, he finally had around a third of the game completed. He was making pretty slow progress. And this was with him being fully devoted to the creation of the game. He was fully devoted, working numerous hours a day on the game. And 17 months, he had only a third completed. This was going to take forever if he didn't change how he was doing it. So he decided that things needed to move a little bit quicker he ended up then taking a step back and laying out a high-level storyboard for the rest of the game. He basically storyboarded out the rest of the scenes that he wanted to do. He also started to reuse some of the graphics in the game to make things a little bit quicker so he wasn't developing everything from scratch for every single scene. And he, he went through there and he basically made it a much more efficient kind of process until finally the game's development was finished and Out of This World was ready to be released, but... It still wasn't all smooth sailing at this point. Chahi needed to convince Delphine to let him draw his own game box art. And eventually Delphine did agree to that. But Chahi, this is really just an exemplar of how Chahi really wanted to have as much control as possible over his singular creation. He wanted to draw the box art because he thought that only he would be able to really reflect how he wanted the game to be represented. So he did get Delphine to agree to let him draw the box art, but he also ran into some problems with the U.S. publisher that they were working with, which was Interplay. And one of the areas where Chahi felt very strongly about was around the introductory music to the game. He wanted to keep the introductory music that had been created for the game. Interplay wanted to do something different. They went back and forth. He eventually got Delphine's lawyers involved and ultimately Interplay relented. So the moral of the story or, or the main takeaway here is that Chahi was incredibly tenacious in wanting to deliver the vision that he had in his head and he didn't really want to have others tell him that he couldn't do that. So he worked tirelessly and he really worked very closely with both Delphine software as well as Interplay to make sure that the things that he felt very strongly about were able to be delivered in the final product that he was creating. Uh, going back and speaking on, on the music piece a little bit, the soundtrack of Out of This World is one of the few areas where Chahi realized he wasn't going to be able to do everything entirely solo. 
So he actually enlisted the help of his friend, Jean-Francois Freitas, who ultimately created the music in the game. And with all of those details finally ironed out, the game was released on the Amiga computer platform in 1991 to what amounted to an incredible critical response. The only complaint that most critics had at the time was that the game was pretty darn short. Uh, That was criticized, but pretty much everything else about the game, critics loved. The gaming community loved. This was something that was a truly cinematic experience that felt unique. Both critics and players agreed that this was something unlike anything else they had experienced before. Because of that success, it was ported to a bunch of different platforms, and as usual, each port had its own unique quirks with different music, graphics, and all different stuff that made each port unique and not necessarily a one-for-one recreation of the original. So just a few to go into some examples here. On the MS-DOS platform, there was a whole, a whole additional segment was added to the game, which ultimately then would be included in all of the other ports after that. But Chahia decided that he wanted to add an additional level, so to speak, to the game to flesh out some of the content. So from the Amiga to DOS, there was a whole additional segment added into the game that would then be propagated out throughout every port that would follow. For the Sega CD, not only did it have a port of the game, but it also included the game's sequel, which was called Heart of the Alien. That was included with the Sega CD version pretty much for free. Uh, It also had CD audio, which was something that not every other platform had. On the 3DO, the background graphics were much more detailed than what you would have on the other ports. So their background graphics had a lot of additional detail, which interestingly, uh, I actually heard that I believe Chahi himself had said that he wasn't as crazy about the 3DO background graphics because he felt that the the foreground graphics or the character graphics with the polygons didn't really mesh as well with the background. But I will say the 3DO background graphics look pretty darn good. Now, the craziest port out of all of these was the port to the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. And the reason why the Super Nintendo port was so different is because it was pretty limited hardware-wise, especially in comparison to some of the other platforms we've been talking about. So how do you cram a computer platformer into a Super Nintendo cartridge with very limited hardware? Well, you turn to somebody that's basically a genius level programmer. And in this case, they turn to Rebecca Heinemann. She was actually one of the founders of Interplay, and she was tasked with the act of converting or porting out of this world over to the Super Nintendo. Now, Rebecca Heinemann had done a lot or has done a lot of ports to a lot of different systems. And oftentimes each of those ports are in some way, I'll use the term loosely impossible, but she somehow figures out a way to do it. There was a lot of focus and a lot of work that she had done to port doom over to the Panasonic 3DO. As an example, she basically had to rewrite the entire thing in a matter of months and ultimately ended up being not the best version, but it was amazing what she was able to accomplish given the constraints So Heinemann had a similar kind of situation here with the Super Nintendo. She was asked to port out of this world to the Super Nintendo. And most of the time you have this kind of task and you'd be able to use the full resources that you have potentially available to you to do that. But Heinemann couldn't. She basically had both hands tied behind her back as she was trying to do this port. Just to give a couple of examples. 
Interplay, the U.S. publisher for the game, wouldn't pay for any of the hardware that would be needed to better run the game, to better run a polygon-based game. There was a chip that the Super Nintendo used to use called the Super FX chip, and that was not included by default in the Super Nintendo system, but certain games had the Super FX chip included. You can think of probably the most popular, one of the most popular ones was Star Fox, which itself used polygonal 3D graphics, and with the Super FX chip was actually able to run okay. Without the Super FX chip, it probably wouldn't have run all that great. So Heinemann wanted to use the Super FX chip for the polygon graphics in Out of This World. Interplay said, no, we won't pay for it. We won't pay for additional cost or the additional cost that would be included with the cartridge. So Heinemann actually ended up having to develop a software rendering routine that would run on the actual Super Nintendo hardware on its CPU. And in order to do that, she had to do so much or so many tricks at the hardware level just to make it work, just to make it be a functioning game. And it was crazy that she even got the game running on the Super Nintendo. We will talk about the Super Nintendo version because that is the version that I played when I was a child. So I have explicit memories of the Super NES version of the game. We will talk about that. But just suffice it to say, Heinemann got the game working and it was amazing she was actually able to do that given the constraints that she was facing. So moving on from the ports, I could talk about ports all day because I find the uniqueness of each of those ports fascinating. But regardless, Out of This World would be released. It would go on to sell over 1 million copies throughout the 90s and would also serve as the inspiration for other future games like Flashback, which was also a game developed by Delphine Software. Eric Chahi would continue working in the gaming industry, but he never went all that far away from his original masterpiece. He would work on other games throughout the years, but he never forgot Out of This World. He never forgot that game that he almost singularly created. And he would eventually acquire the rights to the game after Delphine Software went out of business. And then Chahi himself would go on to work on both the 15th and 20th anniversary editions of the title, all of which had various improvements that Chahi himself directed and or directly worked on. So whether you know the game as Another World or Out of This World, the impact of the game was significant. If you played it in 1991, you experienced something truly unique. Even if you play it today, you can very clearly see how this was a true labor of love. It's definitely an experience that deserves to be played, and I can't imagine anybody playing it back then and thinking, I'm going to forget this. We are now going to shift from history to talk more about the act of playing out of this world today. So we'll go into more detail about the game specifics or the specifics of the game and how it feels to play. Out of this world was a cinematic platform adventure game. And what that basically means is think if you had a game like Super Mario Brothers, where you had to jump from platform to platform and avoid enemies and all that kind of stuff. Now picture if all of the speed was taken out of it and instead it was focused on delivering a much more cinematic kind of experience. It was much slower paced. It was kind of focused on story. We'll talk about story in a little bit, but it was basically a very slow paced 
platform game that had adventure elements. It had some light combat, some uh, puzzle solving elements. It was, it was pretty much a thinking person's platform game. So there is a story here and we'll talk about that when we get to the story section of the discussion, but high level, you are a physicist that is doing a lab experiment one night working on a particle collider and of course that experiment goes wrong there's a lightning bolt it messes everything up you get transported to an alien world you eventually meet an alien buddy you save him he saves you and so on and so forth uh, the, there are a couple of things here and i've kind of glossed over that story a little a little bit and one of the reasons i did that is because the story while defined is not something that is really well-defined it's kind of left to you to almost interpret what's going on in the overall game there really isn't too much of a narrative and one of the reasons for that is that the aliens cannot speak english and there is no translation so you really don't have any sort of direct interaction with the aliens in the game other than visual and there are some scenes where you actually can witness or look at the aliens performing actions or your friend performing actions and it becomes apparent or clearer what you have to do but there really was no communication in the game which once again lends itself to showing how chahi was really looking at this as an isolated experience even though you had a friend that you can work with you had this alien companion you couldn't really communicate with them effectively you couldn't communicate with any of the other aliens effectively so you were pretty much stranded yourself and isolated on this alien world the overall actions that you could perform in the world are relatively minimal you could walk you could run you could jump and you could shoot and that was pretty much it for the most part uh, the laser pistol that you get does serve multiple functions. You can use it to shoot. You can create a shield, which helps to block some of the other laser fire that might be getting fired at you. Or you could create a mega blast, which will blow through shields or other walls or other elements in the game that might need to be destroyed. Now, the game itself is split up into multiple segments. They're not really levels per se, but each of the individual segments in the game are kind of segmented off so to speak, uh, meaning that there are a series of screens that represent a single segment. And then if you get past each of those screens, or you get past that series of screens, you will get a password that will allow you to continue with the next series of screens. Um, so you don't need to complete the game in all one sitting. There is a password system there. But if you miss something, you could be uh, you could be in for a little bit of a little bit of a tough a tough time because some of the puzzles are not necessarily very straightforward and speaking of puzzles environmental puzzles in the game actually played a huge part of the experience you would think going into it that most of the game is going to be focused on the actual platforming elements or the ex exploration of the environment but there were a number of areas where the real way to advance was you needed to figure out what how to advance you needed to figure out what screens to go to what to do on each of those screens and how to best advance the overall state of the world in order to move on to the next part of the game trying to figure out that right sequence or that correct sequence of events to get to the next segment was pretty much more difficult than most of the platforming in the game and, and that's why when we were talking a little bit earlier it's it is a cinematic platform adventure game but it's also kind of a puzzle game and I find the uh, I find the the intersection of those individual elements very interesting to me. It was 
very well done. It was done in a way that you didn't really tell or you couldn't tell you were playing a puzzle game, but you absolutely were. And it worked. It worked for what Chahi was trying to do here. So before we get on to the review kinds of stuff like graphic sound, music, all that kind of stuff, I do want to look at what the box says, because oftentimes when we would get a game, when we buy a game, you pretty much went off of what the box said or what the box looked like in order to determine if you were going to buy the box and the game that was included in the box. So for Out of This World, the back of the box says lights, camera, action, You'll think you're actually on a movie set when you star in the cinematic action adventure Out of This World. Out of This World was like no other game on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Using a completely new graphic system of cinematic zooms, pans, close-ups, and cuts, Out of This World gets you involved in a breathtaking story of interdimensional travel. You'll duck as lasers blast, boulders crash, and monsters roar. The complete musical score and realistic digitized sound effects will make you feel like you're on a movie soundstage. Being a hero is hard work, and you'll experience it firsthand as you run, jump, dodge, and shoot your way across a hostile world of deadly earthquakes and alien monsters. So grab your hat and whip, charge up your blasters, and get ready to star in your own movie that'll take you out of this world. Cinematically styled, rotoscoped animation, state-of-the-art, real-time polygonal graphics, continuous mix of digitized sound effects and musical score, and fast-paced, non-stop action adventure. So you can see pretty easily that they were going for a cinematic experience here. And the uh, the logo for Delphine Software on the box actually shows one of those, uh, I don't know what they're called, a clip clapper board or whatever that directors use or that, that movie studios use when they're setting up for the next take. It's like, hey, take three, and then and they clap the, the thing. I, I don't know exactly what that's called. I guess it's a clapper board or something like that. In any event... They were trying to really drive home that this is a cinematic experience. I will kind of draw some, uh, <laughs> there's a couple of things here on the box that I don't know really made sense. And they kind of went a little bit overboard here, especially like the line, grab your hat and whip. I'm going to tell you right now, there was no hat and whip in the game. That seems to be a, a very thinly veiled reference to the Indiana Jones series, which is not out of this world. So I don't know exactly what they were going for there. That line feels a little weird to me. Obviously, this was the back of the box from the Super Nintendo version, because like I said, that is the version that I had the most experience with as a child. So I thought it was only appropriate to read the box for the Super Nintendo version. Um, but it was kind of interesting how they how they presented the game. Definitely a cinematic experience, and that was what they were really going for when they were trying to market it for people who wouldn't really know about the game other than reading the back of the box. So to go into more depth around some of the specific elements of the game, we're going to start talking about the the individual specific areas like graphics, sound and music, the narrative and story, the playability and controls, and the overall feel of playing the game. Now, I do want to say something here, and we're going to talk about, about this a little bit. There is a distinct difference between the Super Nintendo version, which is the version that I have the most experience with, and the Amiga version, or, or even just the other PC-based versions or other versions on other systems. Uh, we'll talk about the differences there, but a little bit of a spoiler alert. I can only say that when I was a child, playing the Super Nintendo version felt awesome. I loved it. And going back and revisiting the Super Nintendo version, 
that's a little bit rougher than what I uh, what I remember. But like I said, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. We'll start by talking about the graphics. One word I can think of to describe the graphics, even today, amazing. I thought these graphics were awesome. I loved the polygonal look of the world. I loved the polygonal look of the characters. The rotoscoping and the smoothness of the animation really worked for me. Obviously, these graphics were not as technically proficient as today's games. But, but you know, you can really see how a modern retro or modern indie title could potentially be trying to capture this same kind of style with the game they release today. It's very easy to see that that other games that would be released after Out of This World were inspired by the game style. So the Polygon graphics themselves, they were really interesting. The cutscenes, especially, that would play during the game felt like the old-style virtual reality that you would see in arcades back in the 90s. And I don't know if anybody else has any fond memories of playing virtual reality, and I should probably use those that phrase in quotes, but playing virtual reality games in the arcades in the early to mid-90s, it was a very odd experience. It's nothing like virtual reality today. Basically, you would go into these arcades, for anybody who, who didn't experience this, you'd go into these arcades... And they would have a section set up where they would have these monstrous virtual reality machines that would basically be on cranes. <laughs> they would be gigantic monitors and almost like a tank that would that would basically sit on top of your shoulders. And these were all attached on cranes. They would lower the crane down so that it would be sitting on your shoulder and your head would be in this fully immersed area that basically was taken up by a whole screen or a, uh, I don't know, I can't remember if it was like a 360 degree thing or just in front of your face, but it was not nothing, it was nothing like the virtual reality of today. But this was what we had back then, and I thought it was awesome. But in any event, the reason for mentioning that is that the virtual reality games in the arcades back then were very similar in polygonal style to what you would see in Out of This World from a polygon standpoint. Most of those VR experiences had polygons for all of their different objects. It was very flat shading. There were no texture maps or anything like that. It basically felt kind of similar to Star Fox as well from an overall graphical perspective. And because Out of This World used polygons and simple shading for most of its graphics other than the background, it just was something that reminded me of that arcade VR experience from the early to mid-90s. But I will say that the imagery overall was very evocative. You really did feel like you were in an alien world. That being said, there weren't a ton of different environments, and you could certainly see where there was some reuse of the graphics or reuse of the environments at play. But what there was there really felt stylistic. It felt really well done. And rather than being restricted by technology, I really feel like the game was uh, used its limitations effectively and the art style for the overall experience was 100% on point with what you would expect to see from a desolate alien world. Moving on to sound and music, what was there from a sound and music perspective worked, but I will say that that different platforms depending on where you play this game, you're going to have a different experience with from an audio standpoint. As an example, the Amiga version, which was the original version of the game, only had music at the very beginning and the very end of the game. There was no music during the game itself, which I can honestly say creates almost an additional feeling of isolation. When you play a game 
and there is no music in the background. It's just kind of ambient sound or just the sound of enemies or characters around you. It almost automatically creates a feeling of, of isolation and desolation. And I think that actually worked in its favor for the Amiga version. On the Super Nintendo, there were musical interludes. It was not a fully orchestrated soundtrack or something that would play constantly throughout the game, but there were interludes that would play at different points, especially where there might have been some combat scenes or chases. They would have some music that would play there. The Sega CD had full CD audio and had an actual soundtrack. So you could see, depending on which platform you played on, you would really have a different auditory experience. I will say that whenever the music did play, regardless of what platform you were playing on, it was pretty great and it meshed really well with the world. It's just one of those things where depending on where you play it, you may or may not actually experience much in the way of sound or music other than sound effects. And that's okay. It actually lends a certain degree of character to the experience, even without having music in the game. Moving on to the narrative and story, and we touched upon this a few minutes ago as far as the overarching kind of story arc of the game. But just to reiterate, you play as a scientist that gets sucked into an alien world and chaos ensues. But basically, the whole story itself was because there was really no text, there was really no interaction from a verbal perspective with any of the characters in the game, created a very mysterious kind of environment. The underpinnings of the overall story were provided by cutscenes. And most of those cutscenes, you kind of had to interpret what was going on because, once again, you didn't really get fed any information. You, you pretty much can just interpret and watch and observe what's happening, and that effectively is how the story was delivered. Most of what you actually take in from the game is based on the experience of playing the game and exploring the environments rather than a directly fed narrative that you would be following. Now, that being said, holy cow, is the ending weird. <laughs> the ending of the game, I I don't know how to interpret that. And I don't know if this is a spoiler or not. I mean, the game has existed for over 30 years. So if you haven't played it before, maybe skip like a minute, minute and a half, because I do want to talk about the ending a little bit. Uh, the ending itself, so basically, you work your way through this this crumbling alien city. You get to this final fight where where you, you fall down and this alien bad guy is going to get you and your, your companion jumps down and starts beating the bad guy up and you have to crawl along the ground to open up a, basically, a, a roof kind of thing. You open up the roof and a laser shoots down and kills the bad guy and you're able to get away with your alien companion and you survive. Now, the way that happens is at the very end of the game, your alien companion carries you and you fly off on some sort of uh, dinosaur, like a pterodactyl kind of creature into the sunset, and then the game ends. And I got to say, I had some questions. I, I don't know what happens next. And maybe that's answered in Heart of the Alien, which is the sequel on the Sega CD, but which I did not play, admittedly. But it's kind of weird. Like, well, where where does that go from there? Okay, so you you saved, or you, do you save the world, or did you not save the world? And you kind of just ride off into the distance with your buddy on a pterodactyl. Do you ever get back to your world? Do you just stay in this world? I, I Like I said, I have some questions. I, I guess everybody lives happily ever after, maybe, sort of. I don't know. Um, I will say, 
that I did read somewhere that there were an alt, there were alternate or there was an alternate ending that Chahi was looking at creating, but ultimately did not go with. I think that ending involved you becoming the leader of the alien world or alien race or something like that. I don't know that that would have made much more sense either. Uh, so as far as narrative and story goes, I mean, I appreciated what was there. I appreciated the mystery and not really knowing what was going on with the alien world. I think that lended a certain degree of, of kind of uh, intrigue to the overall experience. Was it the best story ever written? No. And you could really tell that this was something that was improvised over time as opposed to penned up front and then had the game elements created to actually execute on that story. Moving on to the playability and controls, this is one of those areas where your experience is going to be entirely dependent on the platform that you're playing on. If you're playing on a computer or you're playing on a higher powered console, the game feels smooth. I mean, it, it feels great to play. It works really well. You will control your character. You, you'll feel like you have agency over your character to be able to do the actions that you want to do. And it feels good. It's It feels like a game that is well-designed, well-animated, and you have control to actually manipulate and move around your environment and shoot the bad guys and, and really strategically work through any of the battle sequences, and it's a great feeling game. On the Super Nintendo, which I did go back to play for this podcast, and like I said, when I was a kid, the Super Nintendo version was how I knew out of this world. I did not play it on any other platform back when I was a child. I only played it on the Super Nintendo and I thought it was great. And now I played it again and it's not great. <laughs> it's not, it's, uh, it feels, it is so choppy. The, the frame rate on the Super Nintendo is so low and it dips and the animations are choppy and, and just the, the way the environment kind of interacts with you in some some areas you have to actually pass under boulders that are falling or you might have to avoid enemies that are on the ground and boy is it a poor experience on the super nintendo it is really rough and i'm surprised because not only did i play the game as a kid i loved the game as a kid i would play the game multiple times i got really good at the game i could probably beat it in 30 minutes um, without really losing any sort of Lives without dying at all. I got really good at the game and I tried playing it on the Super Nintendo just a couple weeks ago and it is really rough. I was surprised. I was really surprised, um, especially considering my memory was not that. <laughs> my memory was this is a cinematic game. Now, part of that might have been, I mean, how many times did you see polygonal games on the Super Nintendo? And what basically felt like we were talking about the virtual reality arcade experience. How many times could you see graphics that reminded you of an arcade on the Super Nintendo? Uh, so it, it was it was probably a little bit of novelty there. Not to say that the game itself is bad. I think the game is fine. But the Super Nintendo's limitations for the game, it just it does not shine on the Super Nintendo, especially having experienced the game on other platforms. Now, I can safely say the Super Nintendo version is not the way you want to play the game. There are plenty of other platforms that you can play the game on that give a dramatically better experience. If you're going to play the game, do not play it on the Super Nintendo. Play it somewhere else 
even if it's emulation, just play it somewhere else. Do not play it on the Super Nintendo. It's not that great of an experience. So how did it feel overall to play the game? If I discount all of the platform inconsistencies, because I don't want to hold a given platform's uh, concessions or a given platform's restrictions against the game itself. If I discount all those inconsistencies, the game feels amazing to play. It, it feels great. It's, it's a really worthwhile experience. I do have to talk about a couple things, though, and caveat what I just said. If you're playing through this game for the first time, if you have never experienced it before, it will be a very difficult experience, most likely. It takes a little bit of time to get used to the controls and the feel of moving around the game world. Even though the animations are smooth, even though you have control over your character, there is a certain feeling of the motion of moving around the game world that you have to get used to. And I don't know how to explain it better in words. It's something you really have to experience and feel yourself to be able to see, oh yeah, it does not, it's not like moving Mario around a screen. It's definitely a weightier feel. It feels weightier to me, moving around, moving your character around the screen. And it's something that takes a little bit of getting used to. You will die, and you will die a lot at first. And you're going to have sequences, really long sequences of the game, where you just do not understand what to do. You don't know what you have to do to, to progress. You go through all these rooms, and you may have killed a few bad guys, and you still don't move forward in the game. Or you move forward in the game and you die and you end up being reset many, many screens before because you missed some critical element that you had to do in order to really progress to the next section and get the next password that you can use to progress into the game. These are all of the puzzle elements in the game. So like we were talking about, this is really not just a game about platforming and adventuring, but there is a lot or there are a lot of puzzles that are included in the game. This is all part of that, and until you figure out what those puzzles are and how to solve those puzzles, you're going to be in for a little bit of a tough time. Now, with that said, once you get a feel for the game and how it plays, you will begin to really become immersed in the game game world, and you will really feel that you are experiencing a completely new alien experience, and it it's going to start to grow on you. I can almost guarantee it will grow on you, but there will be periods of time where you don't know what the heck you're doing until you figure it out. It's going to feel very alien. And I guess, you know, that's probably intended by the designers, but eventually you will become hooked and the game will, you'll, you'll almost meld with the game and it'll feel almost like a comfort to play. You'll feel much more comfortable playing the game. And I know for me, when I was a kid, I played it so much that it almost became comfort food to me because it's a very short experience. It is, it's really short. Like if you know what you're doing, you will only take 30 minutes to play through the game. Like it, it is, it is not a lengthy experience and you can replay the game, but nothing changes. It's just the same exact game, but it's a good game. And that's why when I was younger, I would replay it probably once every couple of weeks. If I had 30 minutes to burn, like, yeah, I'll put out of this world on and I'll, I'll play through it. I'll have some fun. But I mean, it's tricky because nowadays we have a lot of different games that vie for our attention. Back then, 
as a kid, a lot of times you have a much more limited set of games that you could possibly play. So you devote your time to getting really good at the games that you have and you devote your time to to really becoming an expert at it or you replay it constantly just because that's what you have available to you and you keep playing it. Nowadays, you have a lot more opportunity to try different things. Still, it's a 30-minute game if you got relatively good at it. You might as well give it a go. I mean, 30 minutes is not a large chunk of time to experience something that is a landmark title that was released for computers and home consoles. It is a great game. Uh, it's just not something that is probably doesn't have as much staying power today because there are so many other experiences you could be trying. It still warrants a 30 minute playthrough at a minimum. Now, there were a lot of people that were critical of the game's length, like we talked about. Uh, I kind of see it as a positive, though. And the reason I say that is because it it's almost like when you would watch a movie multiple times. Because, I mean, it's not like the movie changes, but you like the movie, so you watch it multiple times. Uh, playing this game, because it's so short, and once you get familiar with it, kind of the same thing. And that's why when I was a kid, like I was saying, if I had some time to burn, I would just throw on the game, I'd play through it, I'd have some fun, I'd turn it off, I'd go do whatever I was going to do. You could kind of look at it the same way here, but like I said, I don't know that anybody's going to be really going out of their way to play this multiple times, given all of the other experiences that we have available to us. So, what is our verdict? Where does Out of This World sit uh, in comparison to other experiences? How does it hold up today? This is a little bit of a tough one, because even though I'm trying to remove the platform inconsistencies from the equation... Different platforms really do provide vastly different experiences. If all you know or all you try to play is on the Super Nintendo version, you're not going to think that this is all that great of a game. You may be able to recognize that, yeah, I get it. It's kind of kind of interesting. It's kind of a different style. But you're not really going to say, oh, yeah, this is something that is a, is a certifiable classic. But if you play one of the superior versions like the computer platform versions like the Amiga or the DOS version or, or anything like that, if you play one of those, you're going to see why many people consider this to be an all-time favorite game. And I have to look at it from that perspective. I can't just say, well, the Super Nintendo version is really bad, and I'm going to hold that against it, because I try to experience, as I'm going through and playing games for this podcast, I try to experience games in their original form. And for Out of This World, the original form was on the Amiga and other computer platforms. So if I look at it from that perspective, and I discount the Super Nintendo version, which is not great, Out of This World does, in fact, belong in the pantheon of classic gaming. It is a true classic. Even today, if you play the right platform, it remains a pleasure to experience. Um, and actually, there have been, like I mentioned before, Chahi worked on both the 15th and 20th anniversary edition of the game. If you want to play it, if you have not played it before, you should play the 20th anniversary edition of the game. It is most likely the best version of the game. It's available on most modern systems and most modern consoles. And you can even toggle the music and the graphics options to match the original release. You don't have to play the remastered version of the graphics. You can play the original version and see what all the fuss was about without any of the platform inconsistencies that we've been talking about. 
So if you've never experienced the game, I am not suggesting you go out and buy yourself an Amiga or or go run through hoops or jump through hoops in order to get this running on old vintage hardware. You have a version that's readily available. Just pick up the 20th anniversary edition and play it. And you're going to have a good time. I think at least I had, I had a good time and I played multiple versions as I prepared for this podcast. I played the original, played the Super Nintendo. I played the 20th anniversary edition from my perspective Uh, As long as you're not playing on the Super Nintendo, you're going to have a good time. But the 20th Anniversary Edition is most likely the best version of the game. It really provides the best of all worlds. Regardless of where you play it, except Super Nintendo, and I'm sorry I keep harping on that, but it's really bad. But as long as you try the game, I can almost guarantee you you're going to see what all the fuss is about. And that is why Out of This World, for me, belongs in the pantheon of classic gaming. That was our episode on Out of This World. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If anybody would like to provide feedback or have ideas for future shows or future games to cover, you can certainly reach out to me. I have a couple of ways you can get in touch. Either send me an email at classicgamingtoday at gmail.com or reach out to me on Twitter with the handle at classicgamingt. Before we call it for the week, just want to mention real quickly that our next episode is going to be focused on the arcade beat-em-up classic Final Fight, which also came out on a number of other systems, or at least was ported to a number of other systems. So we will be talking Final Fight in around a week. If you have any particular memories or fond experiences of that game, feel free to write in. I am absolutely interested in listening to what you all think. As we do wrap up, I do want to remind everybody that regardless of where you're listening to this podcast, it would be awesome if you could leave me a review and just let me know how I'm doing. I am not looking to bolster star counts. It's not about getting a bunch of five stars out there, though I would love that if that were true. Uh, But I do want to legitimately hear what everybody thinks. I really want to make this the best podcast it can possibly be. And the only way to do that is if I can gather feedback from the community and make sure that we're doing the right things to meet everybody's expectations and delivering the best possible podcast I can. We are still growing. We will probably be growing the entire lifetime of this podcast. That's really my goal is to just keep going and keep growing. I am continuing to try to develop the community, and I am legitimately interested in hearing what you all think and how we can make this as good as it possibly can be. Until next time, I hope everybody enjoyed the podcast. And remember... Sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>